Thank you, Carlton. And for those of you who were here the last time I preached, I hope you were impressed that I actually uh, did not forget uh, that someone else was going to read the scripture. I had this in my hand, Carlton's scripture, and I taped this on a podium so I wouldn't forget. So um, now if you had known me in my younger years, you would know that um, this is not because of old age, that I tend to be uh, forgetful, that um, in college it was joked by my other dorm guys, I can never leave the dormitory once because I always had to go back to retrieve whatever it was that I forgot. Now, speaking of that, about what you used to be like, now I, I know for most of you that uh, your success in life, I'm sure it was no surprise to your parents, no surprise to your your grade school teachers or in the communities, but there might be some of you when you give your Christian testimony, or maybe when you're just simply telling your story, you will start off like this. No one would ever have thought. You know, given how, maybe a little how wild you were, no one would have thought that you turned out to be the good citizen that you turned out to be. Or given how, how bad of a student you were, no one would have thought that you would have gotten to college and that you did so well in college or went on to graduate school or you did so well in your career. Indeed, some of you, you might have a testimony that there would be people who were surprised that you lived past your 20s, given that. Now, our story this morning gives us really the only glimpse, a small glimpse of what Jesus was like when he was growing up. Now, so let's, I encourage you to turn to that. You'll find it, by the way, in your, in your insert. Uh, you'll just see the whole scripture text there, and you can follow along with that, or certainly use your Bibles. But the first thing I want to bring to your attention are what we would call the bookends that, that introduce the story and that end the story. So in verse 40, we're told that the child grew and became strong, Filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. Then you go to verse 52. We're told that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now you'll note there are two two traits that are repeated uh, in each verse. There is wisdom and there is favor. Uh, Depending upon the... Uh, the version that you're using, if you're using a different version in ESV, it'll have, and the grace of God was upon him. It's the same Greek word in each case of grace and favor. So let's consider, first of all, this part about wisdom. We're told that Jesus was filled with wisdom, that he increased in wisdom. Now, no doubt it is this wisdom that is that has astonished his teachers in the temple. And we're we're told then that it is a a wisdom that's received from God, and then it is so exercised by Jesus as to be able to understand God rightly. So look look back with me again in verse 40. We learn that the the favor of God uh, was upon Jesus. And I want you to think then that, kind of think of it this way. You know how I or Sam the minister 
at the end of the service, we'll, we'll raise our hands and we will bestow a blessing. Think of it that way with God the Father. He is bestowing his blessing on his son. And it's that very blessing that causes his son, Jesus, to grow, to become strong, to be filled with wisdom. God, in his favor, blesses his son with wisdom. Just to point back to that in Proverbs, in chapter 2, we're told this, that it, it is the Lord, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the ways of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path, for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. And this is Solomon, the, the teacher, teaching his son. Wisdom comes from the Lord. And if you will take that, then all the more it will lead you to walk in a right way. Indeed, that wisdom from God is what will put you into a proper relationship with God. Let me read again from Proverbs 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it, for this wisdom is for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. That's what wisdom leads one to. And that is the type of wisdom that Jesus had. And so our passage will conclude in, in verse 52. That Jesus continues to increase with favor with God uh, in wisdom. And in that wisdom and in that favor, they go together and lead one to a right understanding and walk with God. Now, this wisdom in favor with God will also lead to good relations among Jesus' neighbors. Again, as stated in verse 52, he had favor not only with God, but with man. And so by wisdom, the boy Jesus will understand, he'll understand how to relate to his parents, to whom, as we're told in verse 51, he will submit to them. By his favor from and with God, he will lead a life of integrity and of love for his neighbor, and that will stead him well, with it, and particularly in his hometown as he's growing up. Now, again, this then all leads us to this one story from Jesus' childhood. Right? We are told that he's accidentally left in Jerusalem for three days. And it's when they, the parents find him that we're going to pick up the story. It's in verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, just to get the, the setting for you, Jesus is in the temple courtyard. That courtyard, by the way, is about 
35 acres. Okay, this thing is enormous. And the courtyard is surrounded by a colonnade. Okay, so there's kind of like a portico that goes all the way around. And what would happen is that rabbis, the teachers of the law, uh, and particularly those in our text, they would meet with their little schools of disciples. And they would uh, teach them, debate with them. They would undoubtedly meet with one another. And they would uh, debate the scriptures. Now, Jesus, he's only 12 years old. He's actually one year away from being accepted as an adult uh, in the Jewish community. But somehow, somehow he has joined in these classes. And we get a nice picture of what the sessions were like. What would happen is the disciples would ask questions of the rabbis. And the rabbis, in turn, would reply with questions. Someone once asked a rabbi, you know, why do you always reply with a question. And the rabbi answered, why not? That's just the way it works. We like to say that there's no dumb question. And I guess that's true to a degree. But the questions we ask reveal how much intellect we have, how much understanding, and how much interest that we have in whatever the subject is. And questions... I know this as a school teacher can either discourage us, particularly when they just raise their hand and ask, is this going to be on the test? Or they can impress us. My daughter once, when she was uh, in college, she was telling me one day that she'd been in a biology class and the days would go by, the teacher's lecturing to an unresponsive class. And one day in the midst of the lecture, my daughter raised an astute question related to the topic. From that moment on, the teacher became animated, became excited, became impressed with my daughter for a couple of reasons. One is her question demonstrated a skill in reasoning. She was listening to something that made her then apply it to something else. But even more to the point of the, for the teacher, her question demonstrated she was actually listening with interest. Well, that's what's going on here. The religious teachers are astonished all the more with this 12-year-old boy. He's raising questions that reveal a profound understanding of the issues and of God's word. And so they they would be responding to him with their own questions. And he begins to answer them with astuteness far beyond what is typical. And so they recognize what they have here is a prodigy. Who is this fellow? Well, it's at that point that Jesus' parents arrive, and they are also astonished. And they also have a question, son, just like a parent, why have you treated us so? You know, behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And every parent here knows that's exactly what you'd be saying to your, to your son or daughter who's caused all this stress for you. Now, I could then spend time kind of addressing that, the human concern of the parents, of how Jesus, Jesus responds to them. But let's think here now, why is Luke relating this story? What is he trying to do? And no doubt that he's setting up the story in a way 
that's going to set up the person and the work of Jesus that's going to be seen in his adult ministry. And we're going to go into that. You know, Mary's question, by the way, and and, and statement were intended. What was intended as parents? To impress on Jesus who he is in relation to them, namely their son. She makes the point. Joseph is your father. He is their son, and their concern should be, his concern should be about their feelings. I could have said it this way. You might be the Messiah, young man, but don't forget you're still living in our home. That's what they're telling him. Now we're going to look at Jesus' response. And he responds as though he's the rabbi and they are the disciples. Verse 49, he says to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, Jesus is not asking his parents why would they want to find him. But by this question, as a good rabbi, he's asking a question. He's trying to lead them to the true understanding of who he is and of what his primary concern ought to be. So as to looking for him, he's asking How is it you would not have known where I would be? Where else to find me but in the temple? The temple is known as the house of God. Indeed, it's the favorite designation for the temple in the scriptures. So this then leads to the next question by Jesus. Where else should I be but in my father's house? I mean, let's be clear, Jesus is saying, and he's not being trying to be rude, but he said, look, my father, my true father in heaven, is the Lord God of Israel. This temple was built to be his house. I then, as his true son, I'm where I should be. I am doing the work that I should be doing. That is my first, my primary concern. Now, Mary and jo- Joseph's reaction, again, it's the same all of us parents who have. We don't hear what they say, but we're told that they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. They're probably thinking, whatever, let's go home. Okay. Now, what are the lessons that we can learn from this story? Actually, there are a lot of lessons from here that we, any way that we could go, there's theology I mean, what light is shed here on Jesus' nature and the incarnation? I mean, what did Jesus know and not know? You know, what what did he have to grow up in knowledge and and have to learn? And what does all that mean? We could go more the the social route about faith and, and family and how do you balance the two and what gains priority over the two. But I tell you, where the story takes me it's found, again, with the parents, first in a, a statement by Jesus' parents, and the other was in this statement about them. In verse 48, Mary, speaking for her and, and Joseph, says, Your father and I have been what? Searching for you. Well, Mary speaks for many people even today. People who are searching for Jesus. 
when I was in seminary a long, long time ago, I learned there the efforts of scholars to find what they called the historical Jesus. Who's the real Jesus behind the Gospels? And each of them supposedly find Jesus. They write books about it. And, uh, and unsurprisingly, Jesus turns out to be somebody like them who holds the same values that they do. Well, what our story is teaching us, that look, if you're going to really find Jesus, well, there's some principles that, that you need to hold on to if you're going to make it a successful search. And the first principle is this. You have got to believe that Jesus is important enough to find. And that's no problem for uh, Jesus' parents. We, we know that. But most efforts that fail trying to find Jesus, they fail for the simple reason that the search is a half-hearted search. You know, they'll tell you. Well, I'd like to believe in Jesus, but, you know, they, they've been told that the scriptures are, are unreliable. They, they contradict each other and, and, and science disproves faith and, and so on. But they have actually not read the scriptures. I mean, they might have picked up a little here or a little there or went on Google and found a verse here and there. But they have yet to actually read through the scriptures. They've got to read the Gospels. And much less will they bother with any real research. There are just just too many other attractions for them that distract them from the real search. I mean, and so if Jesus is to be found, then he must matter. If Jesus is to be found, you cannot rest until you have searched with all your intellect and all your heart. The second principle, which really, if you're going to do the first one, you've got to understand the second one, is you've got to understand what is at stake. The search for Jesus cannot be reduced to an, to an interesting hobby. You know, like someone who, you know, I've, I've been developing lately an, an interest in uh, religion, and I want to look more into the spirituality. Now, as parents... Desperate to find their son. So the seeker must be desperate to find the truth. Truth must matter above all. Some of you may have heard of of Blaise Pascal. He was a, well, if you were in math, you know him as a great mathematician. He's also a great philosopher of the 17th century. And he's known for what is now called the Pascal's Wager. And it basically goes like this. He's making clear, look, We are all gamblers, every one of us. And we're betting on whether God exists. And we're betting on whether there is eternal life, that there is a heaven or a hell. We're all in this together, and we will pay up upon death. And what what exasperated Pascal was this. He would write about this again and again in his pen says. He says, look, the average person, gives little to no thought to what awaits him or her after death. We don't know where we came from. We don't know where we're going. It doesn't interest us. Now, he talked about billiards. We'd probably talk today about 
about our sports. But you know this. You know people whom you get them talking about about the game last night, about football. And they will go on and on. They have done their research. They have studied it. They debated it. They, they get so all into it. You get them to, you ask them about what do you think is going to happen after you die? It'll work out. That's a big gamble to make. We're talking about eternal consequences. I mean, we, look, we know here. People come here, they retire at Lake Oconee because it's got great golf courses and I can finally develop my golfing skills. But then again, if you were to ask them, look, you've reached a retirement age, you don't have till another 50, 60, 70 years. 30, 20, 10, well, it'll work out. Just somehow it will work out. So we have to understand that the search for Jesus is the search for salvation. The search for Jesus is the search for what really lies beyond the grave. The search for Jesus is the search for the truth. For what gives life meaning, what gives life purpose. Our eternal destiny is at stake. So we need to, to be committed. We need to know that Jesus is important enough to find. We need to know what's at stake. The third thing, and this is what Jesus is trying to point out to his parents, we need to know where to find him. You know, Jesus is telling his parents, well, where else did you expect to find me? I'm here in my father's house. Now, after his resurrection, he would tell his disciples, look, if you want to find me, you go to the scriptures. So we're told, and again in Luke, in the last chapter of Luke, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, that th- the things that concern himself. You want to find me? You go there. That's where he took his disciples. He took them to the Old Testament. Well, we know is the Old Testament. We now have the New Testament that adds even more clarity. Again, there, there are people out there, you know, trying to find God in some mystical experience or try to find Jesus in some, any way other than going to God's Word that presents Him to you. Jesus is most clearly seen, most clearly understood in the Scriptures. So this, we're going to search for Jesus. Give it our all. Understand what's at stake and go to God's word. Now, the, this all leads to the second lesson. You remember after Jesus responded to his parents, what are we told about them? They didn't understand. They didn't understand his saying. Now, you think about that for a moment. Why did Mary? You know, Mary is the one who visited by an angel. This is Mary who we're told twice that she pondered all the things that she heard and and observed. Why did she not understand? For that matter, why did not Joseph? Joseph had received visions. And we're clearly to understand that Joseph himself was a godly man. Why did he not understand? 
Well, no doubt that the reason is that though each one would have known the Holy Scriptures, though each would have recognized in their son, they knew this, that he's the long-awaited Messiah, they had yet to understand his nature and fully to understand his mission. So, so Jesus, they knew him to be a good son, soon to be a man. He, they recognized that he's a prodigy. They understood that he was especially sent by God, and certainly those, his parents knew that he was sent in a miraculous manner. They knew these things. But what they could not at least understand at that time was that here was God's only son, begotten before all eternity. Here is the second person of the Godhead made flesh. Here is their creator. And so, when Jesus is speaking of the, of the temple, the, the house of God, when he's saying, uh, this is, you know, the house of my father, he's not just kind of being religious and saying, you know, God's my, I think of God as my father, I think of this as his house, and I ought to be here, you know, like we ought to be in church. No, this is a statement of the unique Son of God speaking of this being his father's house. So the other thing that they had difficulty with, not only not understanding his nature, but even understanding his mission. Now again, they, they as all the Jews, they're looking for the Messiah. They're looking for him to come and set the kingdom of God on this earth. But they're thinking more in terms of he's going to free them from the domination of the Romans. That he's going to set up this earthly kingdom. They did not understand his mission of saving his people from their sins, of setting up a spiritual kingdom. He certainly did not understand a Messiah that was born that came for the purpose of dying. They did not understand that he had come to turn the expectations of his people upside down, to make them see Indeed, see in their very scriptures that real slavery was the slavery to sin. That real freedom is delivery from that bondage to sin. That real peace comes from, it comes from being reconciled to God, whom they had in truth rebelled against. Now, you cannot find Jesus if you do not understand who and what Jesus is about. If you, if you set up for yourself the kind of Jesus that you want to have, like these so-called scholars with their, with their books, you've already got it kind of figured out, rather than the one that you must accept on his terms, your search will be fruitless. And furthermore, you cannot understand Jesus if you do not understand yourself, your own need. If you think that Jesus is about, well, you know, you know, making you a better person. You know, I, I know that I don't have it all together. And Jesus, if I follow him, he'll, he'll help me kind of put things together. You know, help me improve myself. Make me a, a more, more spiritual. That's what you think. You'll never understand him. Jesus has come not to make good people better people, but to quote 
uh, Ravi Zacharias. Jesus did not come to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. That's our problem. It's not that we got a little bit of trouble here and I'm a little sick. We're dead. And he's come to give us life. Furthermore, to know Jesus, the real Jesus, is dangerous. You cannot anticipate what he will do with you. For the truth of the matter is that to find Jesus, you'll find one thing, as he himself said, his father has been drawing you to him all along. And his father and he, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they got a purpose for you. They're going to help you with the real remedy that you need. And you've got to understand what the real need. You know, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, I think in the last chapter of the book, and he represents Jesus as saying this to us. Give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your, your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact... I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. Until you're you're willing to accept Jesus' conditions for receiving him, your search will be in vain. Until you're willing to give of yourself wholly to him once you find him, you won't be able to see him and know him. In our passage, leaves us with a Jesus who finds favor with everyone. We're told that he does obey his, his earthly parents. He goes home. He's submissive to them. He's a wonder to the religious teachers. They think he's great. Everyone thinks well of him. But the truth of the matter, he will lose favor with everyone because he will not yield to their expectations. His family later on will think he's mad. The religious teachers will think he's possessed by by the devil. His hometown neighbors will be offended by him. And indeed, he will one day be considered too dangerous to live. But I think perhaps the worst thing is what takes place today. And that's when we try to tame Jesus. We try to use him to to suit our our viewpoints and keep us comfortable about ourselves. He's, He's nice to have. Nice to pray to and so on. We don't have to really change. As this year comes to a close, it's a good time, isn't it, to to reflect on this past year. Has, has Jesus been your Lord? Has he been working in your life to, to make you like him, however painful that might be? Have you come to know more about Jesus? And has that knowledge led you to even in a scary way, to to greater submission to him. 
And for those of you who are still in your search for Jesus, has the problem been that he's difficult to find or that inwardly you know he would be dangerous to find? Is that the reason that you've not been ready yet to give yourself up to him? You know, our success or lack of success is is not so much. It's never really a matter of the intellect. It's a matter of the heart. And so as the new year begins, will your search, whether that search be to find him for the first time, or as a believer to, to delve even deeper into knowledge of him, will you make the commitment to search him, to search for him, to understand him, wherever that search, wherever that knowledge may lead you. Because I will assure you this, however much danger there may seem to be in finding Jesus, and it's true, you don't know what he's going to ask of you, know that ultimately to find Jesus is to find life. It's to find eternal life. It's to find purpose. It's to find the meaning of your existence. And I assure you, once you do give up your control, you give up your anxieties, you give up your pride, whatever it is that holds you back. When you find Jesus, you find peace, true peace with God. We give you thanks for our Lord Jesus Christ, who left his home, who came down upon this earth to search for us, to win us to himself. All the more, our God, as we in this year, as we begin a new year, all the more we be, may we be committed to searching him, to following after him, wherever that may lead us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.